How's it going, everybody? This is the Dirt Bike Channel Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Brotherson. And uh, yeah, pretty cool podcast today because I am going straight to the source again. You guys have heard of the uh, the term once bitten, twice shy, right? Well, that's what happens with me on this podcast. Sometimes I open my big mouth before you know I've thought. My wife says that to me quite often. She's like, do you even think before you speak? And so <laughs> maybe some of you can relate to that. Today, we're going to think, and Kyle's going to think before he speaks, and what I'm really going to do is I'm going to invite back onto the program Ben Burr. He is the policy director for Blue Ribbon Coalition, uh, and he's coming back on the program to give us kind of an update of several projects that are going on with Blue Ribbon Coalition, and he's going to educate us. And the other thing that's going to happen, and Ben doesn't know this yet, but the other thing that's going to happen today is we're all going to learn how to jump higher run faster, swim farther, we're all going to become just like gladiators basically. And so I wanted to, th- I wanted to plug, I wanted to throw that in because Ben said he had like a trick for all of this to work. And so we're not just going to learn about, you know, environmental issues and keeping trails open and, and the, the exploits of sharetrials.org. He's going to teach us how to become gladiators in our own lives. <laughs> <laughs> so fair enough. We need gladiators or something. We, we need we, people who know how to fight. We do. No, I'm just Ben. I'm just. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. I just want to. Uh, I want to keep people tuned into this because if there's one thing that kind of frustrates me more than anything is we we there's, there's so much apathy in our in our user groups. And it's like, you know what? The fight's against us to kind of kick us off lands and we're going to get into a ton of this stuff and to shut trails down. Those things never sleep. The people who are fighting against us never sleep. And so we are extremely lucky to have groups uh, like yours, especially Blue Ribbon Coalition, to help fight the good fight while we are sleeping. And so with with that introduction, um, thanks for coming back on, Ben. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Um, I want to start out by saying about a week ago, well, I guess the weekend right before the 4th of July, uh, we put out a release that we were challenging, basically appealing a BLM decision that's going to close a bunch of routes in the Canyon Rims area, which is kind of down by Canyonlands. It's south of Moab. We'll talk a little bit more about it today. In Utah here. Yeah. In Utah. And you sent out an email blast to your supporters and your followers and we had a simple ask that we were trying to get as many $5 a month monthly donors to this legal challenge as we can get so that we have a base to work off of for the legal funding. And uh, your followers rose to the challenge. We got a lot of new donors from those messages. Uh, a lot of very generous, uh, bigger donors came out of the woodwork. And so the message is getting out. People are getting motivated by what is happening. You've been an integral voice in helping us spread the word. And just to your listeners and those who responded, we had enough come in that for, and we do have staff that will send out individual memberships and thank you notes. They'll get something, but I just wanted to personally thank everybody who's supporting us in this. We've, we are completely outfunded by the environmental groups, but we, I think you'll, fine from listening to me and Kyle today. We're passionate about this. We're going to give it a hundred thousand percent of our effort and make every dollar we raise and every 
tactic we deploy go as far as it possibly can. So I just want to, your listeners are great and I appreciate everything they're doing to support us. Well, thank you. And and I think it's, I think it is really critical to just mention that and to reiterate that, that, Hey, if you're donating five bucks a month, you are doing more than 99.9% of the people that own a dirt bike, that own a side-by-side that have a camper that do any of this stuff because most of us, and it, we, we, co- we kind of covered it in the last podcast. When you buy any sort of recreational vehicle, whether it's a camper or a dirt bike or a side-by-side or even a mountain bike, the last thing that you're doing is looking for a group to support you know, some political group or, or you know, a, a foundation to support. And, and so the fact that you're doing something, if you decide to take a stand and be like, you know what? I'm going to support Blue Ribbon Coalition, share trails. You're doing more than most than most people. And the other thing I would say is five bucks a month or 10 bucks a month, it's amazing how far that goes. If you if we had if we had, you know, even 50 people as as a result of listening to this, if we had 50 people say enough is enough, I'm going to spend 5 bucks a month to support sharetrails.org. That is amazing is in, in the amount of traction that that can do. And then also in my conversations with Ben on the phone, there are, there are ways that you can then kind of magnify that by going and getting matches from different, different corporate partners. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's correct. So we use the money we raise from small dollar donations as we always set it aside, especially for this travel management planning thing that's going on in Utah. We have a separate legal fund. Um, we sequester those funds into a separate account. And then we use those as matching dollars for grants that we get through. Um, we've gotten one through the state of Utah. We've gotten one from Yamaha. Um, we just sent in applications this week for a Polaris grant and for cool. the Overland Expo recently created a charitable nonprofit extension of their event that they're going to use to grant out money that they raise during doing some of the silent auctions and raffles and things that they do at their event. And so we, we hope they'll support us. I mean, we have to see how they respond to the application, but the, when we show up with matching dollars and kind of an invested interest in what we're doing, um, it tells those corporate partners that their donation will go even further too. And so it just starts to compound and become more and more of a resource that we can use to go the distance. And we're and. And unfortunately, we're going to probably have to go the distance on about every single one of these based on what I'm seeing happening in the field right now. Mm. But still, that synergy, that's what we need. And it's either, it's either we lay down and accept defeat or we stand up and fight and, you know, we, we might as well fight. And, and again, that doesn't necessarily mean that we can win every single one of these little battles, but we can't just, we can't just let, we can't just be pushed over by SUA or other you know, environmental, yeah. there's, there's a process to this, right? I mean, there's a, there's a constitutional process. There are protections in place and we want to make sure that our voices are heard. If the other side is going to share their side, share their voice, we, we ought to share ours, right? Yeah. I was actually thinking about kind of what you were just discussing this morning is that defining what winning looks like in these cases is kind of nebulous. Um, so, for example, one of the first plans that was released was the San Rafael Desert. This is this area south of Green River. It's not mm-hmm. the San Rafael Swell, but it's kind of east of there. And they ch- the BLM chose an alternative that was pretty good 
for off-road recreation. Um, this is the one we talked about on the past show. They started with 300 miles and ended up opening 900. Because they typically have four different four different trap plans yeah. that they can adopt, and and they're they're everywhere from kind of liberal to conservative, or however you want to describe it on that yeah, spectrum. Yeah, well, right? I mean, they're in a legal settlement. They're doing this process because SUA sued them. SUA sued and the, the BLM. And the legal settlement requires, yeah, they sued the BLM. And this requires that they come up with at least one alternative that is kind of what SUA wants. And so there's always one that's going to close a lot of things. And just SUA, SUA, just for those listening, SUA is, is the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance, right? Yeah. Okay. And they're an important player in this. They've, they're the ones who've kind of instigated this process and are kind of opposite of our interests. Like if you support outdoor recreation and access to public land, they're, they're kind of working against you. And so they, the BLM ended up deciding a plan that was pretty favorable to the off road community and those who like to camp and those who like to recreate on public land. Uh, but SUA challenged it and they said they didn't do their process correct. And at this point that is being challenged in federal court uh, we filed a motion to intervene on that on behalf of the BLM, and we received notice that we will be allowed to intervene on that just a week ago. So that's a major development on our end, that we will be a defendant intervener on that case and fighting to keep that San Rafael Desert area open as the BLM wants to do. And, But the fact that they challenged that sent a signal to the other BLM managers in the state that are doing this process. And there's 12 other areas that are being looked at. And so Canyon Rims was the next one to come out. And I spoke to some of the people who were in the meetings with the BLM on these planning meetings. They're like certain government officials with our local governments get to participate in that as a, what's called a coordinating agency. And they said there was a lot of pressure within the BLM office to find a decision that closed some things, would make SUA happy, and and that and there was a lot of pressure to find some things to close just for closure's sake, just so that they wouldn't have the idea challenged. And so, did SUA win their appeal yet? I, no, we don't know. It's still there's a court process. It's going to take months to unfold. Have they? influence the process of the other BLM offices to give them more of what they want already? Yes, they absolutely have. Um, the Canyon Rims decision, they could have picked alternative D. That's what I've seen in my analysis. The roads they're closing, there's not a, really a lot of justification for it. The best justification I can find is they were trying to acquiesce and not have the plan challenged. And so if, I, if that's the way the game's being played on the field, well, we have to challenge this decision too yes. to send the same signal back that look and 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 this is based off of actually we've gone on the ground in the field we've looked at these trails we've looked at the maps we've looked at each route report of why they're closing them so it's not like I'm just doing this to challenge them for challenges' sake we are doing our homework and making sure we'll have the strongest legal argument possible to defend the access that was lost here and get the judge to agree that this decision was made in error and it'll be up to the court to decide, but we're going to vigorously fight for it. But what a win looks like in this case is sometimes hard to define. It might be that you're influencing a process later on down the road that you're sending signals to the other decision makers. Um, 
One outcome that's come out of our challenges, I've talked to a lot of the local leaders in Utah, county commissioners and state legislators who are upset that the BLM was closing RS-2477 roads through this process. And that's like a subject for a whole separate podcast episode. But in short, the county and the state believe they have a jurisdictional claim on those roads. We're still waiting for courts to decide whether that's true or not. But until the courts kind of sort this nonsense all out, there are processes for closing a county road, and it's not a BLM process. It is a county process. It is an ordinance passed at a county level by the county commissioners, and the state legislature can intervene in that as well because every county road is 50% owned by a county and 50% owned by the state, at least in the state of Utah. And so we're starting to see that other county commissioners and state legislators are starting to see what happened in this Canyon Rims decision because we've raised so much attention to it. And my hope is that those government leaders who have a coordinating agency status with the BLM won't concede. And so if we're talking about the first tool that our gladiators are the weapon that they can put in their tool belt... (laughs) Um, we need you to contact your county commissioners in Utah and your state legislators. These are your local people. You can probably get them on the cell phone. Uh, These are very responsive local elected officials. And if you tell them what's happening, especially if you live in or recreate in these areas, and so that would be the Book Cliffs, uh, Nine Mile Canyon, Dinosaur, around Dinosaur National Monument, Trail Canyon, which is by the Coral Pink Sand Dunes, Anywhere almost around Moab, the Dolores Canyon, Labyrinth Canyon, Canyon Rims, we have the Henry Mountains, San Rafael Desert, San Rafael Swell, and Richfield, all the areas surrounding Richfield. That's all the places we're looking at here. So if you like to ride in any of those areas, you can contact your own county commissioners, your own legislators here in Utah, or the if you were to contact the folks in Uinta County, Wayne County, Garfield County, Kane County, San Juan County, Grand County. I mean, some of those might be more receptive than others, um, but we do have strong allies in those counties. If they were to hear from our community that we would consider it a strong show of support to not agree to close any RS-2477 roads through the BLM travel management process, that would be a major victory um, because they have a lot of clout when they're in those rooms with the BLM. And if that's their attitude when they go in, the BLM will have to give. Sounds like we we definitely want to involve them and and get them at least to take some action because they they're there's a lot of people that have things at stake with this. This is something that I've been kind of surprised each time uh, you you occasionally call me um, and we chat about these things and maybe bounce ideas off each other. Um, the thing that's been kind of eye opening to me is several times you've told me about all the groups that this is affecting. And to me, I'm just kind of focusing on the dirt bike group. But what you're saying is, Kyle, this is way bigger than the dirt bikes because it also is affecting even just campers and dispersed camping, which I think we'll get into later. But the the, the trickle-down effects of these things are huge. And thinking about this, you know, you, you brought up the idea <clears throat> or at least the concept of, you know, what does a victory look like it almost it almost feels like we have to prepare ourselves to suffer some tactical losses but keep our eye on the strategic goals at the end because there's going to be we're going to have some wins and we're going to have some losses but we need to be focusing on the big picture 
at the end of this. And this and these processes last a long time. I mean, this is the, these these travel management plans and these and these fights have been going on for a long, long time. Since two thousand eight, and and they're still going to continue to go on. And so, please don't email me if you if and uh, please don't email me and say, hey, this is because so and so just got like put into office because all this stuff has been happening. Like these wheels have been turning for a long, long time. It isn't because X person got, you know, elected as, you know, the president or B person got elected as the president. It's these are big issues that have a lot of moving pieces to them and they've been moving for a long time. And what we need to do is strategically get in there and make our voices heard. And it feels like it I don't know, it feels like to me and maybe maybe this is just the optimist in me, but it feels like we can make a difference. We're not going to win every one of these battles. You know, Blue Ribbon Coalition, Share Trails is going gonna, is gonna to fight this. And you're going to appeal any of, the, any of the decisions where we feel like we were slighted. We, as the entire recreational and camping user group, but so we're going to have some wins. We're going to have some losses and we need to be okay with that. We need to just prepare for the fact that we can't win every single one of these battles, but we're still going to win the war at the end, or at least if we, if we're smart about it. And we are yeah. persistent, right? So, yeah, I'm, I share your optimism because I actually know what our numbers are. If we get everybody engaged, we actually, we really do have more numbers. Our economic cloud is, is as big as it gets in if, the public plan space. If we, if we can get the recreational if we can users. Mobilize. Be, yeah. Because like what you said on the last podcast, the, you, buy, you buy a side-by-side and you just spent 30 grand but you need a truck to pull it. And then you need a trailer to pull that. And it is like within that amount of time, you have just spent six or you spent six, six figures. You know what I mean? In some of these cases. And like you said last time, you can buy a lot of hiking shoes, you know, for the amount that you can buy a dirt bike or a side-by-side or a truck or a trailer. And so there is money in our group. We just need to mobilize and organize as the uh, recreators, as the RV recreational ATV dirt bike, and then also campers big time because yeah, this think, affects them big time. Even I the, even the Subaru before, crowd, right? I think in, in five years from now, when we're doing this podcast, we'll be talking about bringing in the mountain bikers to our ranks and the rock climbers and the backcountry backpackers. I think you'll find the environmental groups, the wilderness folks really have no love at all for human presence on public land in general. And if you're one of the few that isn't, doesn't have armies of interest groups mobilized against kicking you out, it's because you're not paying attention or they just haven't quite gotten to you yet, Yeah, but they will. I didn't think they would come as hard as they're coming after dispersed camping, but they are. And one thing I wanted to say about this, the difference between a victory and a loss is the victories are, are not as clear cut, but they exist. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if if we change the behavior of our elected officials in Utah, that'll be a major victory that will do more for this process than any court fight will. And so people need to get engaged. It's uh, That's why I'm educating everybody I can about this process so they know the stakes. Um, but one thing that is 100% clear is a loss is very easy to define. You'll know the loss when you see it. It'll be a sign. It'll be a gate. It'll be something telling you you can no longer access your public land. And if you do, it'll be a fine. It'll be prison. It, like, it'll, the, the losses are clear. 
and it'll be areas on maps that you can no longer go. And so that's, and, and to be fair, I mean, the environmentalists see it the same way. If there's an area where they have to, that they want to be wilderness, where there's no people, and now it has roads in it where people can go ride motorized vehicles, they see that as a loss and that that is somehow an existential destruction of their whole worldview. And so both of us are going into this where the losses are almost zero sum. Like we, we have a lot to lose and what a win looks like then can get defined in a thousand different ways. But I will tell you that if you don't engage, uh, you'll lose. Like yeah. the, 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 the system is rigged for more closures. An example of this, I, I have eight tabs open up on my browsers right now um, of places that are putting restrictions in effect because the demand is so high for camping in these areas. And this is somewhere near the Appalachian Trail in the East Coast. I have places in Montana. Um, I'm looking at some work that we might have to get engaged in in Alaska. Um, it's clearly happening here in Utah. And the story is the same every time. This area is getting so popular. And so we're going to restrict access to it. Okay, so now only a few people can go into an area that's popular. Well, where everyone, where's everyone else going to go? So the rest of the people who are now excluded from the area they used to go to go to a different area. But then what happens? Well, now that area is becoming too popular. And so we're going to have to put in more restrictions. And the areas we're looking at now in these travel management plans are the areas that haven't been designated as wilderness yet, haven't been created as national monuments yet that they don't have other designations restricting access as much as some of the other places. And so these are the, we're already getting concentrated and concentrated into fewer and fewer places. And then they're using that concentration and weaponizing it against the recreation community saying, well, that concentration is causing impacts that can't be mitigated through anything other than a closure. And what I need the recreation community to understand is that we have to reject that mindset. Closure is, is the opposite of management. It is a forfeiture on the side of the land management agency. It's a surrender to their duty to do their responsibility of managing these lands. If their answer to an impact or to overcrowding or to anything of that nature is that we just need to close more, they're exacerbating the problem. And it'll be these the sequences of closures that we're in the middle of now and will probably continue to escalate through the next couple of years that'll mobilize the outdoor recreation community to reject the wilderness movement on a wholesale level and start to realize it's got to fight for its own interests. And that's what I'm setting the stage for. We need the groups and the gladiators who know how to fight these fights and keep the areas open because there will come a time, and I think it'll be soon, where we'll find ourselves in the driver's seat in the public land management debate because we'll have the organization, we'll have financial resources, and you'll have a lot of people who are upset that got sold this vision of you can go out and recreate on your public lands that they've been getting kicked out of over and over and over again, and they will fight tooth and nail to get that access back. And 
so we're set, I mean, we're engaging the process to preserve our legal standing for those fights. This is going to be a process, but the environmental groups, this wilderness people are already overstepping and they're going to end up hurting more and more people. And we have to start to figure out how as a movement, do we welcome them into our ranks, teach them what we're trying to do and educate a lot of the newcomers of what the responsible recreation looks like, and then show up to the agencies with the numbers and the arguments that will get us a better seat at the table than what we currently have. Tell me, talk, let's just go a little bit deeper into that, where you say that the other side is overstepping and, and why that's critical for us to realize that and, and, and use that to our advantage down the road. What, what does that look like? I know we talked about it on the phone maybe about a week yeah. ago. Well, I mean, the, the first example of this is when they appealed the San Rafael Desert Plan, I was expecting them just to kind of give me the, the normal parade of horribles they associate with off-roading, the trail damage, people leaving the trail, trash, whatever, they're disturbing soils and bio-crust and but then I get to the middle of the argument and they have five pages about how the way the BLM runs their travel plans is you can camp anywhere, 30 meters off the side of any road. And so when they're looking at the impact area, they're saying, well, it's the road surface, which they calculate out to a number of acres. And then it's 30 meters out to each side, which expands the actual acreage of what is considered to be a disturbance. And even when you add in the dispersed camping corridors on each side of the road, you're still looking at less than 1% of the landscape is being set aside for recreational use, responsible recreational use. Mm -hmm. And that is still too much for SUA, for us to be able to access 1%, not even 1%. And so that they're willing to fight over a fraction of a percent of land being accessed and that they'll throw who I consider to be the Subaru car campers, you've got the van life crowd, you've got the RV crowd, you got the overlanders, and you have your traditional off-roaders. Like That starts to become a massive group of outdoor recreation that'll get hurt if SUA gets what they want. And so they say what they want. They want the BLM to go and inventory sites and say, if there's not an existing campfire ring, then you can't disperse camp there. And so whatever's there on the ground now is locked in place forever. And if you want to add a single new campsite, you have to go through us and our lawyers and 10 years of government bureaucratic process. And that's the alternative to the system of right now, as long as you just don't destroy the place, you're respectful and you take care of it, you leave no trace, you tread lightly, then you can go camp wherever you want, 30 meters off the side of the road. and. Yeah. And then what we're seeing in Canyon Rims is this, they only close 40 miles of routes out of 270. And I think that's why in their head they thought, you know, this isn't that bad. This is a good compromise. But they closed 139 routes out of 276. That's almost half. And so what are, that means they're closing things that are short. So they're closing the spurs and the pullouts and the places where if you go to Canyon Rims, 70 miles of that road up there is paved. It's like two-wheel drive access to like a single destination viewpoint overlooking Moab, the anticline thing. And so you don't want to camp off the side of a paved road. 
you want to go off on one of these spurs and find a spot that's off the beaten path a little bit and camp somewhere where it's a little more remote and it kind of feels like your own little unique spot for a couple of days. And that's what they're closing. That's what they decided was unnecessary. They're not consequential. They'll, they'll say some of the roads are reclaiming. It means there's like weeds and stuff growing in them. And what we found in one of the cases was uh, a lot of times you'll have environmental activists. I, they might be acting on their own. They might be acting in, in connection with an organized group. We don't know. So it's hard to catch people doing this. But they'll go drag logs and wood and deadfall boulders, whatever, across a road because that's how the land agencies close roads. Is when they don't get used, right? Well, when oh. you when the when the Forest Service or a BLM obliterates a road, that's the process. Is you make drag it hard debris across it, make it look like it's closed. Eventually, people stop using it. Brush and shrubbery grow back, and eventually, the road kind of reclaims. So we do have evidence. I have pictures of this in multiple places now where these these kind of obstacles are created. And it would take 10 minutes to remove them. But that's not the point. The point is it looks closed. I don't know if it's open or not. Now I have to go work with the BLM and ask them, is this open or not? Why are these barriers there? And then we can work to get them removed so that the public knows those areas are still open. But this is, we're talking about a lot of road. And so eventually it's not hard to kind of launder roads back into being wilderness if no one's paying attention to this. And so that's another little weapon your gladiators can put in their arsenal is if you're out riding around and you see a road that's blocked, pin it, geopin it, take a picture, send it to me, Um, go to sharetrails.org and contact us, send us the information and we will work with the agencies to ask them if that's a legitimate closure. In Utah, it's a criminal misdemeanor to illegally block and close a road. Wow. And... I t- so I posted stuff about this on Facebook and I started getting private messages of people. And I, I, I had the weirdest thing happen and it didn't cross my mind until I saw your post. But I have a road that I rode on two years ago and I went back there just recently and there's a tree growing in the middle of the road. That tree wasn't there two years ago. A, cre- a tree can't grow that much somebody in two years. Somebody planted it right in the middle of it. And so I believe somebody actually went out and planted a tree in the middle of the road to make it. And, cause, and to be honest, one of the government people I talked to on this Canyon Rims Trail said to me, there's a tree growing in the middle of this road. It's not been used. It's reclaiming. I was like, and at the time I'm like, okay, maybe he's right. Maybe that one is reclaiming. And then I saw that Facebook comment. I'm like, oh my gosh, they probably did. And we fell for it. And so it's anything like that. I want the story. We, yeah. You can go to Google Maps. You can look at it. You can find a tree on Google Maps, and you can go back to 1985 of satellite imagery on a on Google Earth, I guess. Yeah. And we can find out if that tree's really been there as long as it its tree rings say. So let, let's say they do find this. I'm I'm looking at your website right now. I've got it up on the screen. Where how do they contact you with this these types of you know on the ground information? Where's how do they send that to you? If they take a screenshot, yeah. if they so share trails, we do have a contact us link, and that just kind of goes to a general email brc at sharetrails.org. Okay, our staff that. will filter that through. But if you have an instance like this where there's a what appears to be an illegal road closure, that'll end up in my email box and. 
I'll probably reach back out to the person who sent it, get more information, and then we'll start engaging with the BLM or the Forest Service or whoever. And the easiest way is maybe if they've got like, say maybe they're using Onyx off-road or some other Gaia GPS or Avenza maps or something, you want the actual GPS coordinates of, of that little yeah, location, right? a waypoint would be really helpful. Waypoint. Something that I can do the Google Earth research on it. And I've got to be able to send photos and wait GPS waypoints to the BLM. I have to go check it against. So I found one of these on the San Rafael swell and it was a road that was blocked off that then went and accessed probably 10 different spurs up on top of a Mesa where, you, and there were fire rings and everything past the deadfall blockages. I was like, man, this is a, this is like a high value destination for dispersed camping. And they just made it look blocked off. I went and looked at the BLM's scoping map, which is kind of all the routes they consider to be open at the moment. And all those roads, according to the BLM, are not closed right now. Uh, they might be through this process if we don't if if we don't do what I'm talking about. If I don't go and start breathing down the BLM's neck about why is the why are those obstacles there? Why aren't people going on top of there? There's fire rings, and it looks like there's a, a legitimate use. Why aren't we allowed to use it? And get them on the record of saying, well, you are allowed to use it. We don't know why those are there. And then I can say, well, can we remove them? And if I can get the BLM on record saying that, I mean, I could go like a person could go remove these when they if they want. But I never do that. I always want the administrative record and proof that the BLM agrees that that road should be open because the record is more important than whether or not what's actually on the ground in some cases, especially when things get legal. This is one of the fantastic things about about doing these types of podcasts and these conversations with you is you're thinking about things as a lawyer. I mean, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I don't know if you went to, but the point is you your, your brain works like a lawyer. You know how these things play out. And so you know, for me, I might just throw these things, throw these logs aside or whatever. Um, but you're going, Hey, no, we've got, we got to play. The game is played a certain way. Uh, send me the information, send me pictures, send me, you know, geotag and let us go, let us go sink our teeth into this, you know, fantastic. Yeah. And to be fair, I mean, for, I don't know if I have to disclose or whatever, I'm actually not a lawyer. Um, but you think but like I've, a lawyer. I've worked a lot with them. I've worked a lot with federal agencies. I've been a consultant that works with federal agencies. And I try to avoid lawyers as much as possible, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> Even though BRC has a lot of, has a lot of contact with lawyers. No, right? you need them. Like you have to have them to do this work. But a lot of times I'm going to like a lot of the fights we engage in. I mean, this travel management process is legal from the start. We're yeah. looking at a settlement that was entered into with an environment. Like, if you think we're lawyers, sue us all lawyers. Like I've been in the law room, the, the courtrooms where they've been and they, they're billing out probably five grand an hour to have 10 lawyers in a courtroom. That's like most of their staff. But um, my experience is you can get a lot further keeping it out of the legal realm if you can um especially yeah. with these federal land agencies i mean we have the off-road groups do have a pretty good reputation of being the volunteer labor force for a lot of land management activity that needs to happen the maintenance and road work that gets done and so it's a lot of that goodwill goes a long way too we don't have to do all our work with lawyers um and a lot of this public commenting stuff, I mean, what, I, we can kind of shift gears a little bit. Right now, there's a public comment period that's open for the Book Cliffs Travel yeah. Management Area. 
This is the Uinta County side of the book cliffs. Um, there's a Grand County side as well, which is where probably more people are familiar with, like your Sago Canyon. There's like a ride that goes up there, the petroglyphs. You can get up some of the canyons outside of Green River, and those are pretty accessible to the people going to Moab. But Uinta County is very different. You have to come at it from the Vernal side or Colorado. But this area is incredibly popular for hunting. A lot of big game out there, elk, bison, bear, cougar, deer. And so a lot of people are going into these, these, this book cliff areas to do their hunting and their camping. It's kind of more of a wildlife driven recreation economy, more so than an off-road recreation. Um, But that area has almost 2000 miles of routes and it's vernal and Uinta County are in the initial stages of trying to attract off-road recreation to their counties. I've started to see little groups form organized rides. And so that's an area that I think is going to get discovered in this coming decade. And people, it'll be one of these overflow areas where you can go and just really explore. I mean, the the book clips are kind of like a maze of just canyons and lots of cool wildlife, great archaeological resources. If you know, I mean, as long as you're being a good steward of those, I, like, I love looking at petroglyphs and the cultural resources and kind of just seeing those when I'm out there. Um, and so the book cliffs area, I would encourage people to go comment on that area. And some key points there is the people I've talked to on the ground have said some of the BLM staff in that area are giving a lot of deference to SUA's Red Rock Wilderness Bill. Um, there, for instance, they'll say, "Oh, we have to be more careful about that road because it's in the Red Rock. It's in wilderness in the Red Rock Wilderness Bill." And I'm like, "Well, the way laws work is if it's just a bill in Congress, it means nothing. It's a proposal." It actually has to pass the House and pass the Senate and then pass the conference report and then get signed by the president to become a law. And until it's gone through that process, the BLM has no business considering whether a road is included in a specific legislative proposal. But that's what they're doing. And so if I were people who comment on the book list, I would make it known that it's not appropriate for the BLM to consider road management designations based on legislative proposals that are not law. Um, They need to actually just follow the law, not whatever. And the same thing's happening with this 30 by 30 thing, where they want to set aside 30% of the landscape as protected land. And there's a a nonprofit I heard of that they got turned into the IRS for opposing this. I'm like, because they were violating some lobbying statute. I'm like, they're, they're not lobbying. The 30 by 30 thing's not a bill. It's not even a legislative proposal. It's like a marketing plan from the environmental groups. And uh, like they have a freedom of speech right to oppose that. There's, there, when there's no official bill, but they like the other side is so good at controlling the PR around their movement. They get away with a lot of what I consider to be, I, I mean, that to me is just, it's nonsensical. Like you shouldn't be basing decisions off of things that aren't law. If you are yeah, a federal yeah. entity, you just shouldn't. And so I don't know how they've managed to launder their ideas and legitimize them in a way that hasn't been legitimized by the Congress yet. But those are some of the dynamics in play there. Same thing as what we're seeing in Canyon Rims. There are a lot of main canyons in the book cliff, but then there are a lot of little side canyons. And then you get up on top of some of the different levels of it and you get to lookouts and things. 
that's what I'm worried they'll close, try to close a lot of in this one are the side spurs and the lookout points. And people need to realize what the impact is going to be. There's a lot of shed hunting out there. A lot of people go into this area just to observe the wildlife, to prepare for their hunts. And if you can't get to the certain areas where you're observing the herds and the animals that you're going to go hunt in the hunting season, um, it could make it. And there are some guys that kind of like the idea of there being less accessibility for hunting, um, but it'll make it so that the masses are excluded from hunting. If you don't have a mule train and some ability to get back into a really rugged backcountry and do a hunting excursion with some sort of a guided outfit, uh, you're going to lose a lot of access through this book cliffs plan if you don't get engaged. Yeah, for sure. Now, did you say that you had like a, a page on sharetrails.org that has more information about the book cliffs? We do. Yeah. So if you go to updates, um, that's where we post all of our kind of update mm-hmm. articles about this on our the top menu. There's an update. Oh, so we'll have an update about this and the canyon rims. I have a few things teed up that we'll be pushing out in the next couple of days of, I went, looked at a case in Idaho. That's going to be a big one for uh, some of the dirt biker people. Maybe you know them up there, but outside of Haley, there's a bridge that got washed away and they're replacing what was a vehicle bridge with a footbridge and then cutting off access to like a whole area through zoning ordinances and bridge movements. And is like the, the, the other side is very creative and resourceful in coming up with all kinds of ways to be like, oh, we didn't close those roads. We just made a choke point that you can't cross the drawbridge anymore. Yeah. And anyway, so yeah, we, I strongly recommend everybody follow our updates. Um, one thing I could point out is to, I don't like to be a shill for following and liking pages on Facebook anymore. I mean, I've followed the Facebook platform for a long time professionally. There was a period of time where a lot of page likes really translated into a lot of traffic to a page. I found I get a lot more traffic now sharing it into groups and getting other influencers to help me share my content. And we do a good job. Uh, but what I have found is that on some of the grant applications that we've applied for, um, they actually ask like how many Facebook likes you have, because I guess that matters to them for some reason. And so that's another little weapon in the tool belt is you can help a group like ours look even bigger by doing those little things, liking us on Facebook, liking our posts, because uh, it's I include in our grant information screenshots of our analytics and say, this is the reach I have. These are the people I can reach when I share this out into all the groups. Um, and some of our posts, like we, we do okay for the size of an organization we are. And, and I look at, I mean, I've run some pretty big social media accounts in my day. And so it's, it's for what we are, it's, I think I consider it to be impressive. But then I go look at Polaris, which is a massive corporation. They have one of the sexiest products on the planet. And they do a 4th of July post, which has the troops on Polaris machines. And our posts are getting a lot more engagement than theirs. Even though they're a big brand, they have massive marketing budget for digital media. And that tells me something that they as a corporation aren't connecting to their customer in ways that they could. Yeah. A lot of our members are Polaris customers. They care deeply about these legal fights and not losing access to our public land. And 
I think Polaris is missing a huge opportunity to connect to their customers on these issues. And uh, you and I have talked about this. And, I, and so I've, I've applied for a grant with them. I'm going to give them a chance to support us um, through an official program they've created through their corporate branding department. Um, but one thing I'm working on is I'm writing a letter to, let me see what her name is. CEO of Polaris, right? Yeah. So uh, I, I tracked down, her name's Holly Matson-Spaith, and she's the director of corporate branding and partnerships at Polaris. I'm writing a letter right now to her to explain what we're doing, the work we're doing, the support we're seeing from the community. And then I'm going to make a formal ask and invite for them to support us. And one thing that I think would help this letter become a lot, have a bigger impact um, is I'm going to put a page on our website where you can add your name to this letter too. And we'll just have a big database of names. So these are people who've read this letter, awesome. agree with the message and want the corporate leadership of Polaris to know that the fight we're in is virtuous. It's beneficial to their customers and they should be one of our biggest supporters. And if I can get Polaris customers in mass to help us in that and off-road community in general, so that they can see we've got numbers behind us. And so this isn't, doesn't take money. This doesn't take anything. This is just adding your name to a letter and I'm putting my name on there too. And so you add it with mine. And it'll be polite. We're not threatening them. We're not, it's just, we would consider it a strong show of support for you to support us in this. And the reason I feel like we need to do this is because I don't, these corporations, like Polaris gave $5 million recently to the American Forest Foundation, which is great. I mean, they do trail work. They'll maintain trailheads with the money. Um, that's great. I have nothing against that on the surface. Um, yesterday, Tread Lightly announced that Ford is releasing a new initiative through the Bronco Wild program where every sale of a Ford Bronco is going to donate to Tread Lightly, which is great. They do important work. Their message resonates. They've, they've really helped educate the community and they create a lot of, they've helped sponsor and train a lot of the groups that do the trail work. Here's my concern. We had a trail group, a local trail group in the San Rafael desert who had teed up about a hundred volunteers to come down into that desert and put up signs, maintain trails and do the work necessary to help the public know which areas in that, which roads and routes in that area were open. He had a, he'd been working months to tee that up. 24 hours notice, BLM calls him up and tells him, never mind, you're not allowed to do it because Sue is threatening to sue us if we let you. Jeez. And so he had to call all his hundred volunteers and say, we can't go do the work. We're the volunteer army of the Federal Land Management Agency. We, this is all free labor for the feds. And they basically said, sorry, we're representing at least eight or nine groups in California who got OHV grants through their state program to go do trail maintenance and trail work and the trailheads and clearing the wall, the deadfall and whatever these groups overperformed their grants. But there was a state audit of the program. The auditors decided that they didn't overperform, even though they have documented evidence that they did and decided that these groups collectively owe the program back $700,000 of money that was approved 
stamped and signed for by the decision makers in the agency. They went through the whole process right. And then afterwards they said, well, our agency people didn't do the job right. So you have to give all the money back and you're not eligible for grants anymore. And so they've basically sidelined nine incredible groups in California who've done a lot of amazing work over the years. Um, And so I hesitate to say that I know it's easy if you're Polaris or Ford or one of these big OEMs to support the tread lightly mission or to support a program that creates trailheads. Cause you can point to a thing. It's tangible. It's like, there's some, there's some graded dirt that, that wouldn't be graded if it wasn't for us. There's a kiosk that wouldn't be there if it wasn't for us. It's harder to point to a lawsuit and say, yeah, we funded that lawsuit. But I'm telling you, if we lose the legal battles, the next domino to fall is going to be our OHV volunteer brigade and they will shut us down every step of the way and we won't be able to go out and maintain the trails even if we show up and pay for it all ourselves do all the labor ourselves we'll start to lose access to even that form of advocacy that's been one of our most effective tools and so that's why we need the polarises of the world and these other folks to understand the reality on the ground of what's happening and get in the game and understand that the politically easy ways to support this cause, which is building the trails and maintain like the trail maintenance programs and education programs. Those are great. We'll help with those as much as anybody, but they're not enough in the legal environment we're in. And if they're not willing to back the legal, the legal resources that are necessary to win these fights, I don't see that lasting anyway. It just seems so short-sighted to me that you know, you're even having to go to them. And I think it's a great, I think it's great. I think this is fantastic to go to these OEMs, go to these manufacturers and say, Hey, look, your customers are at risk here. We are your customers and we are, you know, facing these legal challenges from multiple angles. It's like they've in, in many cases, it's like they've got us surrounded, you know, like these, these, uh, these, uh, you know, ideas or these groups in California where they're going and they're doing the work and they're volunteering and they're doing all the things that they're supposed to do. They're trying to cross their T's and dot the I's. And then all of a sudden it comes back on them and now they owe grant money back. I mean, you can't even make that stuff up. And well, and they the, don't want to volunteer anymore. They've completely they've they've been alienated in the heart they've been alienated those people are completely turned off and i've heard this sentiment sentiment before i won't share any names but i've had influential people in the dirt bike community here in utah say call me up and be like kyle you're you know you're fighting a losing battle because this is what happened to me you know i did i did this this and this and look how far it got me it got me nothing but wasted time because these these groups are ruthless these the people I don't want to say our opponents, but I don't have a better word. The opposition, the the opposite side of the coin from us, they can be ruthless. And so, yes, it's going to be fantastic. It's we we need to get some of that legal support from these OEMs, from Polaris, from Ford, whoever else, KTM, Honda, Yamaha. You know, they need to step up. Otherwise, you know, their customers are going to go away. You know, you can't sell a side-by-side anymore, Polaris, if your customers have no place to drive it. You know, and it just seems short-sighted to me that they haven't figured that part out. And I'm sure these com- the issues are complex and they've got board, you know, meetings to, you know, they've got all these things that they have to do. And then you brought up the fact that one of Polaris or Polaris's biggest customer is the federal government, the military. 
uh, and they're, you know, these razors are carrying troops around, which I think is interesting. <sighs> but I'm glad that you're yeah, doing something. I'm glad that, that you're at least going out and, and let us know when, when this letter is ready. It would hurt us more than help. I mean, I, I haven't engineered this to be like some big Twitter campaign. Like let's tweet at Polaris and tell them to support access. And if it, if it looks like a rabble rousing effort, it probably backfires, but that's why I've decided I'm going to formally ask like, to be fair, we need to ask yeah, and we need to come and show them what we're doing, actually lay it out and then make a formal ask so they can make an inf- make a formal decision. And then they're either with us or they're not. And so I'll, I'll carry that burden. I will do whatever it takes to make the ask and do it in a way that is reasonable and substantive and shows them that we're not just out there throwing bombs that we're really trying to solve complicated problems. And we're trying to do that by having a meaningful, aggressive and substantive seat at the table. And that's a fair ask. And if I show up with thousands and thousands of names added to mine and say, we agree with what he's asking for, and we would see it as a strong show of support, then it's up to them. They can choose us, their customers, or they can that's there. You're right. There, it'll be a complicated decision. They'll have to make it with the board and their corporate leadership teams and all these groups. And, I, and I, I'm starting with Polaris just because it's there. They recently gave big donations to other groups. They clearly have the resources to help. I just want to make sure they understand the full nature of the battlefield, like what's actually going on. And if we're successful there, then I want to, even if we're not, I, I think, I mean, just your email alone has had some of the, what I would consider to be the retailers, some of the businesses involved in this space step up and donate. And we're incredibly grateful for that. We'd love to see more of it. Um, the dealers have a role to play. I would love to see dealers get more engaged. Um, and I mean, I was telling you today, I was talking to Onyx Maps I mean, we're in the stages of building a strong relationship with them. A lot of the, I mean, their, their mapping app is phenomenal. I, I use it when I do my trail work. And I think that they have a lot to offer to their customers by fighting to keep the trails that their maps show as open as open. Yeah. And help them understand what is there that's being lost. I mean, a lot of these places are empty spots on maps that people haven't gone before and they're really, really cool spots. Um, you, I mean, if you look at some of the posts we've talked about on our website, I have pictures of the dispersed camping sites and the roads and the things I've been at. Well, I've been doing this inventory work and these are phenomenal areas. Like if you were to go and actually see what these are and realize you're losing access to them, you'd be livid. Like these areas are phenomenal and there's maybe you've been to some of them, but if you haven't, trust me, I've seen them. You, you are losing something incredibly valuable as part of our public land system that you can't access this anymore because of what's happening. And it, it's some of the most spectacular landscapes on this planet. And if you don't have an able-bodied two feet, you can walk on to get there by the time this is done, then you might, you'll probably never see it. That's uh, I, I, I'm glad you brought that up because you, you talked to me late last week on the phone about this concept of, uh, and I'm not making, I'm not making this up. You talked about this concept of concentration camping 
Can you can you can you kind of elaborate and and share a little bit more of that because I was sitting here at my office at my desk and you said this thing concentration camping is this term that's being used and I just like I perked up I'm like concentration camp and I I was like am I listening to a podcast about 19 you know World War II and concentration camps or are you actually saying this is happening now Oh it is um so Chafee County in Colorado um, this is, uh, have you ever been there? This is like Salida, Buena Vista. I've driven through it and you're like driving through these valleys surrounded by these 14,000 foot peaks. It's one of the great, I mean, I love, that area of Colorado is just spectacular. So naturally it's an area where you have COVID. It's an area that has a lot of open forest service land around it where you can go and dispersed camp. And so you, and it's not too far out of Colorado Springs or Denver. And so you've started to see a lot of people moving out to rural towns like Buena Vista and Salida. And, um, but they, but then you get there and what do you find? Can you afford a house? No. I mean, the houses in these places are millions of dollars now because there aren't very many. The housing supply is restricted by the public land surrounding them and the cities can't grow out anymore. They don't really have any tools to solve an affordable housing problem at a community level. And so people come out and live in vans. They live in RVs. They go disperse camp on public land. And so now you have these communities where you've had a surge of dispersed campers coming to these areas and mixing with a bunch of people who've just paid a fortune to buy a little house in Buena Vista, Colorado. And their vision of their life in their new million dollar home didn't include that person camping in the van down by the river. (laughs) And so they've gone to no short lengths to set up little nonprofit organizations to envision the future of their community, which is all just sort of a sanitized effort to just get rid of the dispersed camping people. That's all it is. They don't like the dispersed camping people. They've, They've found the things they don't like. There's human waste problems, which you look, I look at if there's human waste problems, build a bathroom. Yeah. We don't have to close the area. You, we like the public land agencies have proven they know how to build bathrooms in the wilderness. I've, we, seen, I've, I've used seen them. them. I've seen them. Yeah. They, they're not, they're not, they're not <laughs> the most luxurious bathrooms, but they do the job. Yeah. And so you can solve a human waste problem with bathrooms. You don't, and, and to be fair, their plan does include building some bathrooms, but ultimately they're, they, one of the key features of their plan that they're trying to get through is to concentrate everybody in what is called a community concentration zone. And so I'm like, okay, so you got these people that are camping that you don't like, that are creating problems that you don't like, and you're going to concentrate them into an area where they can camp. And they're actually calling it that, a community concentration zone. And I'm like, they're (laughs) concentration camping. And so I'm a supporter of dispersed camping. Um, And and I'm not opposed to like a paid campground where people go. Like, that's great. It's not my preferred way. KOA is already concentration camping, right? I mean, sure. Paid concentration camping, but it's, but I don't care. Like people yeah, yeah. like that experience and they go and, and it's kind of, I've stayed in KOA campgrounds and it's, you kind of get these little communities where people come and go and they do, it's, it's not a 
they, horrible thing. They have, I mean, they have showers, you know, it's, it's kind of nice. And there are a lot of Americans who enjoy that experience. And I think this is a free country and we should have all the KOA campgrounds that a market is willing to bear. There you go. But not only KOA campgrounds. If we're going to have a public land system where the federal government owns 600 million acres of land and they're going to advertise it as public land and it's there for our benefit, it's a public benefit, then there should be a permissive policy of letting us use it, letting the public actually enjoy the benefits of this land. And what we're seeing more and more is there are very orchestrated, organized, well-funded, well-resourced efforts to put in place a very different worldview on our public land system. And it's, and the consequences are dire. And the concentration camping that's happening in Chafee County is the same thing that's in the other areas I talked about. Areas become popular. They look at that and say, well, there's too many impacts. There's too much garbage, too much human waste. They'll, they'll have the list. And instead of saying our answer to that should be, well, let's create more areas. Let's designate more areas as open. Let's build more roads and let's have the areas off the side of the roads be open for dispersed camping. And let's give these people a space where they can recreate and get the public benefits of outdoor recreation and enjoy them. The answer instead is to say, well, we can't manage these impacts. So we're just going to close it. And so now you have, it's like, plagues of grasshoppers it's like they only have these few little islands of access where they can go and those and it keeps the, the a concentration zone is a horrible idea if you're trying to mitigate impact a concentration zone is designed to concentrate impact there's going to be impact and so it's a wrong-headed approach we should be opening more areas we should be opening more roads we should be designating more areas for dispersed camping the public clearly wants this. They are spending vast fortunes on RVs and sprinter vans and overlanding equipment. They want to yeah. go have this experience and this lifestyle. And our public land system is looking at this fleet of campers coming in and saying, no, whoa, 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 whoa. We didn't plan for this. Our job is to preserve the user experience, which is to go have a backcountry hiking experience. And I look at that and say, then you need to update your plan, man, because the people want this. Yeah. And and there's enough, there's enough space. I can't tell you, Ben, how many times I've been out on a dirt bike and I'm in the middle of nowhere and I've ridden my motorcycle for two hours straight in one direction and I haven't seen a person. We'll go out in these on these rides and we'll ride for six hours or eight hours and never see another person. And if there's one thing I've learned about the Western United States, it is that there is a hell of a lot of area. I mean, and it's vacant. It, it is the it most is, it, vacant landscape you'll ever travel across. It is so open. And so we are not saying, we as dirt bikers, OHV, hikers, campers, we're not saying that we want to turn all of it into New York City and we want to rape the land. We are saying we want to go out and experience this. And there is so much land out there that if it's responsibly done, we can, we can accommodate all of these people and still make it so that no one sees each other for five hours because there's so much land you just mentioned over 600 million acres and you have to stop and think about that if the federal government owns 600 million 
acres. If you've ever think about this, I want the listeners to think about this. Every person in the country could have two acres. Oh my goodness. Never see yourself. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's like if you've ever seen 600 acres, I've got acreage behind me that, that is privately owned and it's now being developed there. I know kind of what 600 acres looks like, but you cannot fathom when you take 600 and times it by a million. We are talking about a lot of land out there and we are not asking to rape all of it. We're just saying we want to responsibly use it. And you're telling us that these opposition groups are saying you have less than 1% of this and we want to restrict you off of that. And, and I go off of that, impacts that I consider to be over-exaggerated and in some cases, phantom impacts. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I'm going to post a video soon on our page. Like I shot this a couple when I was out on this Canyon rims area, because one of the things Sua will really get up in arms about is soils. And that's because one of the laws FLIPMA gives them a statutory standing to, to defend soil quality. And so they've real. I mean, if you've been to Moab, you've heard about the bio crust. You can't visit Moab and not have somebody preach to you. The sermon of bio crust is sort of the lifeblood of the desert and that you can't go tread on it or whatever. And it takes a million years for it to grow back. And I was up on an area, one of these routes they said was reclaiming. Um, you can see the two treads. I mean, obviously it had been used, um, but there were footprints in it. And I knew that there was a person who had been there about a week before me. So we were talking about that route and I suspected the footprints were his. And so I knew those footprints had been there about a week and this, and so the, in the week between when he had been there and when I was, was there, um, we'd had some of these monsoon storms come through. So we'd had some rainfall. And so within a week's time, this desert ground, the ground I was stepping on was crunching. There was a thin layer of crust already formed on this, these footprints that I think hadn't been there longer than seven to 10 days. Yeah. And so this soil was recovering. And so Sua kind of, I've seen, there's like this weird paradox that you see in their legal arguments. On one page, they'll argue there is irreparable harm being done, these impacts. And so then we get like guilted into this mindset of we have to be these responsible users. We also need to push back on the fact that the impacts we leave aren't that significant either. Um, This biocross is going to grow back in a week. In the next rainstorm, it's going to start. And sure, there's some that have been there that are probably hundreds of years old, and that's cool. I like nature. I think that's cool. I don't. I don't go destroy it. We could, we couldn't go but, destroy all of it even if we tried. There's too much land out there. But then they'll say, and they'll say it's irreversible damage. You look at these roads, and you get up on these lookouts, and you can see a dirt road down there, and it's, it's like the size of a piece of hair on a tile bathroom floor. The road is it's almost imperceptible. Right. But they'll say that the dust, fugitive dust from that road is creating such a big problem that it's blowing over into the Colorado Rockies and increasing the snow melt. Like, these arguments do not stand up to scientific scrutiny. I have no idea how they stand up to judicial scrutiny. They're nonsensical. And we shouldn't s- sit and take it that yeah. they claim that the impacts we cause, I, like I was in one of the areas we are in is a, that we looked at a route they're going to close is in a box Canyon. Okay. Did you see the videos of Zion about two weeks ago when there was a flash flood coming out of Springdale out of Zion? I didn't see like it. Washing away cars and boulders, the size of houses. Those are the geological forces that carve these canyons and these river washes and these bottoms. You're telling me, 
that a dirt bike is creating an impact that's irreparable in an environment that was created by that? By absolute colossal forces of nature. Yeah. Like these that are so erosion events that are so big, they can be seen from space. Like these people are not serious. I don't. And so we have to start also calling them out on that. Their arguments are nonsensical. They're taken seriously because we don't show up and challenge them, tell them to prove it. And they claim one of these roads need to be closed because it's bighorn sheep habitat. It's a lambing area and the vehicles will disturb the sheep. I, I tracked down one of the biggest bighorn sheep guides in the state. I'm like, is that true? He's like, yeah, there are bighorn sheep there. This is on this, the road that comes out of the Schaefer trail. You'll see them on the side of the trail. They'll be like walking up and down next to the traffic of Jeeps coming in and out of that area. They're so impervious to vehicles. They don't even care. Uh, uh, like people going in there on a dirt bike isn't going to hurt the sheep. They're used to us. They know what we are and we're there. We're not causing irreparable harm. Yeah. Well, this has been fantastic. Maybe we can kind of end on, uh, end on just kind of like the grand strategy um, for public lands and where you think things are headed in the coming years. I know that you don't have a crystal ball, but uh, maybe that would be a, a, a good wrapping point for us. Yeah. So I strongly believe that, well, so the public land system has kind of gone through cycles. And so it started with the colonial people where you'd come and like George Washington was given land for his service in the British military. And then they reneged on the deal. And that was one of the things that really kind of pissed him off and made him want to fight the British and join the cause of the revolution. Like the revolutionary war was about land policy and people wanting to escape the broken feudal system of Europe and find opportunity, which was based in ownership of property in America. And your service in the Revolutionary War was often paid in land. And so our first kind of generation of land policy was that kind of spillover from Europe uh, and a response to the failures of the European system. And that eventually transitioned into like the Jackson, Andrew Jackson Homestead Acts, where we were giving away free land to everybody if they'd go settle the West. And that had a pretty good run. Um, You get to the mid to late 1880s and you start to see the transcendental people like Emerson and Thoreau and these people who start to see that there's spiritual value in the landscapes. And that's sort of your roots of the modern environmental movement. And so that starts to become a thing at that point. Then Teddy Roosevelt comes along. We start to get the public land administration system like a that our we can set aside massive swaths of land, especially in the West. And people from Yale and upstate New York can just manage these big preserves of forests and land and for the benefit of the public. And that's where the administrative state that we kind of deal with today. And so these are like these are different phases that happen. It's not like that when one ends, like the Homestead Act is still with us. We it's actually repealed. You can't really go homestead land, federal land anymore, but you can see its effects. If you fly over the country, you'll see the grids of where people homestead it. And so the Teddy Roosevelt thing kind of gave way to what I consider to be the mainstream wilderness movement that came of age in the 60s. And it's kind of been what's been the, in the driver's seat of public land policy for probably the last 60 years. And they'll probably, I think they're in kind of the decadent stage of their movement. They're very drunk with power. They have more money than they know what to do with. 
the law is more is more often than not on their side, but their movement is hurting people. It's very it's very dehumanizing. Um, it, it starts from the premise that humans shouldn't be there and that humans are bad. At the same time, we have this exploding outdoor recreation movement. And outdoor recreation has been kind of part of public land since the beginning. It's just never been, it's always just been kind of a tangent. It's like, it's where the public support comes from. It's where the goodwill comes from. The public goes along with public land system because of the recreation component. But there is not a statute. There is nowhere in federal law that says you have a right to go recreate on public land anywhere. You do not have a right to do it. You like you are there because they allow you to, because they've decided to let you. And so I'm what I hope and what I think is in the cards, if you look at just the demographics and the economics of this, there is massive amounts of money and goodwill and power in the outdoor recreation movement it has every right to be in the driver's seat of public land policy right now, but it is barely in the back seat. It might be being drugged behind the horse. And every now and then it's propped up is like, oh, this is the outdoor recreation people are with us. They get used. And what I hope to see happen is that outdoor recreation replaces the wilderness movement as something that's more in the driver's seat of this public land policy debates. And that'll happen when outdoor recreation community recognizes that it needs to have its rights to access public land recognized in law. And uh, those are things I'm in the initial stages of figuring out what would legislation look like that defines a right of access for public recreation. Um, And once we have that, that would give us legal standing to, if they close a road, we could show up and say, you can't close that because you've violated this right that was granted to me through statute. And if we could get to that point, there would be a massive shift in the public land policy. And the managers would start managing the land for what we talked about. If there's an explosion and surge of demand and interest in use, if people want to disperse camp, if they want to live in a van on public land, we need to legally define that they have the right to do that. Right now, all they have is permission to stay there for 14 days. And if you stay there longer, you could be fined. You could be in trouble. You could have your right to public land revoked to access it. Like you, it, like, But we can't get a big law like that passed if the outdoor recreation community doesn't realize that it is its own interest. It has its own interests that it needs to fight for. And it's not just some sort of useful tool for the other interests that are the most engaged in public land policy right now. And so, I mean, I think Blue Ribbon Coalition and Share Trails is very well positioned to be an influential force in what I think is going to happen, the changes that are going to happen over the next coming years. Um, we want people to be members of the organization, like a membership is an important part of our lifeblood. I mean, we've talked about the $5 donations to the legal funds, like that's crucial to like fight the fights. The membership base provides sort of the overhead to run the organization. Like I didn't realize it, but to run a nonprofit, you have to, the compliance costs are extraordinary for, you have to register in all these different states. You just have to have a compliance person that just keeps on top of things and keeps you so that you're not getting hurt by 
I mean, there's a lot of scrutiny on how a nonprofit operates. Um, and so you do need the overhead costs. And then the membership numbers are also clout. When I write my letters and comments to the BLM, I always talk about the members and the people we represent. When I write a letter to Polaris, you're going to see in there, this is who we are and this is who we represent and this is how big we are. And so a membership, like a $5 monthly donation, I mean, our memberships are like 25 or 35 bucks, depending on which one you get. And if you get the $35 one, for there's a two-year membership of a $35 membership, so $70, but then you get like a gift card to Rocky Mountain ATV MC, which has been another one of our really big corporate supporters. Um, and so it's, again, not a lot of money, but it gives us a lot of important tools to do our mission. Yeah. Well, that's good. I'm, I'm just showing the, the website here right now, sharetrails.org. Um, I would encourage everybody listening to this. If you have made it all the way through this podcast and you are not a member of sharetrails.org, I mean, I'm just telling you, this, this is something that probably needs to change. You probably need to start contributing to these organizations. I don't know of a single other organization and maybe there are, and Ben, you probably know some others that are doing some really good work. Um, this just happens to be the one that I know the very best. And I have, you know, been kind of watching what has happened over my 10 year dirt bike career. And the more, the longer I go at this, the more I realize that we just can't stay on the sidelines anymore. And we've, we've talked about that a ton. Um, so I've got sharetrails.org up here. Um, you mentioned, you mentioned hopefully soon you'll have the uh, letter to Polaris when that, when that comes out where people can sign up, where do you think that's going to live on the website? Uh, for yeah, but to- I'll give you a link. So when you publish this to your channels, we can have a link somewhere. Okay. Uh, and it'll be in the updates section on our okay. page. Okay. I'm wrapping that up today. It seems like that's a you know, kind of like blog post setup where you you've got these little articles. Yeah, with just on. a web form. Okay. Okay. Very it'll good. be really simple. And then the thing I want to close on too is that um, you and the Dirt Bike Channel, Kyle Brotherson. I mean, you are a magnifier of this message. And I, I like to think that this hasn't been really hard work for you to help me get this message out. I, like I enjoy talking to you. I learn a lot from you. I hope this you feel the same. I suspect a lot of your member or a lot of the people who follow your show are also members. And that's the other that's the other little weapon a gladiator put in their tool belt is just helping us spread the word. You've been as good an example of this as anybody. And you've helped us get the word out about these things as well as anybody I could have asked for help from. And so if you're listening to this and you have your own channel, you're, you're in your own groups on Facebook. I mean, almost everybody in this community is part of a bigger community. And I would, I need all the help I can get getting the word out. And if that becomes a positive feedback loop, as I get the word out, people reach out to me with their issues and it gives us a bigger portfolio of things we can work on, which is great. But that also means that eventually I hit my bandwidth of what I can do, which means that's where the membership funds, like the membership, when I say overhead, what that means is money to hire staff. Like I would, I like my goal is to have this be an organization that has 50 staff that I'm training how to do this work. And so that we have an army of well-trained people that know how to do this but I can't build that if I'm not getting the resources to make this worth people's time. And a a 
part of our movement that's both a strength and a weakness is we're really volunteer oriented, really good people. I mean, some of the best people on the planet I've met are in this OHV space and they volunteer, they give back to their communities. They do it all out of the goodness of their heart. But that sometimes takes the place of then we haven't professionalized this yeah. very yeah. well. And we're up against people who have professionalized this to the nines and they make very good livings doing this professionally. And I don't think any of us need to go make vast fortunes doing this, but if there's people who are believe in this and want to be involved at a bigger level, we need more organizations out there that can help them do it in a way that I consider to be more of a professional approach than the volunteer based approach, which I have nothing against, but you got to have both. And so that's another sort of, I, I want people to understand that the resources we get, we are very passionate about using those to fulfill our mission. And so again, I want to end where I started. Your community's already been phenomenal. Um, we've received a lot of donations from your listeners and supporters, and we hope that continues. We hope they'll help spread the word. And I'm available to anybody who wants to reach out to me to get more information if they need help on their own issues or if they want to, if they have their own platform or show or if they're an influencer like you, I want to connect just like we have. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you coming on the program. It's it's awesome. I want to continue to do these um, updates as we go along because the message needs to get out. So thank you for the work that you're doing. And again, just like Ben mentioned to everyone listening to this or watching this, if, if this, I think I should put this, this out on YouTube, uh, spread the word. I get that it's not the sexiest thing to do, but Every time we share this message with a new person who can then become a contributor. I mean, we, we can, can hire sexy people if that's what it takes. <laughs> <laughs> if that's what it takes. I'm, yeah, I'm probably not going to be that For now, that you're person. stuck with me and Kyle. <laughs> yeah, for now, for now you've, got, you've got these two ugly gents. Actually, actually, Ben's not ugly. He's got that woodsy, you know, that, that uh, woodsy feel to him. He's got the beard going on and everything. I'm clean shaven though today, but yeah, thank you so much for everyone watching these things. Let's spread the message. Let's keep fighting the good fight and let's be positive and, and know that we have, you know, a right to have our voices be heard. We're not asking for the moon. We're just asking to have access to these areas and not have them all shut down. It's an irresponsible position from the other side to say, no, no one could do anything. That isn't a solution like Ben mentioned. And I think that uh, we need to remember that and, and, Thank you so much for fighting the good fight. I'll cut you yeah, loose. I just want to say I actually do want the moon. Like if we start actually taking tourists to space on the moon, I think one of the first industries you'll see develop up there is off-roading. Oh, my goodness. Because so, there are no roads. Well, and that, that's interesting, too. We've never talked about space exploration, but I, I'm all for space. I'm all for tourism in space, and I think that's the only way that we really get stuff happening in our space I program. I guess if we're not careful, that might be all they let us have. Yeah, so maybe. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. So. Consistent. Okay. Well, thanks, Ben. I'll cut you loose and uh, we'll keep fighting the good fight. Appreciate it. See ya. See ya. Wow. So if you watch that, you have now seen approximately an hour and 24 or an hour and 25 minutes of this. Um, Ben Burr, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, thank you so much for coming on the YouTube video that we will hopefully do of this. And uh, I appreciate all the Dirt Bike Channel listeners. If you heard that, he said that, hey, 
the DBC followers are actually mobilizing and doing something. So give yourself a pat on the back um, and then let's continue to do that. Let's be contributing members of the Blue Ribbon Coalition and let's get involved, you know, and a little bit, a little bit of uh, oomph as far as from our pockets for these legal funds and these legal fights, uh, it can go a long way. So I appreciate all of that. Um, this is the part of pod, this is the part of pod, the part of the podcast where I say, hey, if you want to support Dirt Bike Channel, one of the easiest and best ways you can do it is to use my links to Rocky Mountain ATV. It's cool too because Rocky Mountain ATV is also a partner for access here with ShareTrails.org. If you go to ShareTrails.org, their website, you can see I've got it pulled up right now. Um, I don't know if they've got my membership up here. I'm not a partner for access. I should probably become that. Um, I should probably talk to them and see how much that costs my little business. Uh, but I dirt bike channel does sponsor uh, blue ribbon coalition. I do a yearly uh, donation and then we'll contribute on separate little legal funds as they come up. They'll send you notices in the mail, um, either snail mail or email. And uh, it's a good way to get involved and to make a difference. So thank you so much to everyone. Again, use my links to Rocky Mountain ATV. You can find them over at dirtbikechannel.com. That really helps to support me. Uh, coming up here in just a little uh, little bit, I've got another Dirt Bike Channel sweepstakes going on where I'm giving away a motorcycle. That will be a 21, brand new 2021 KTM 250 XCW TPI. That starts on August 1st, and it goes through August 31st. Those funds from those sweepstakes help us to pay all the bills here help us to buy motorcycles, help us to buy gear, help us to bring those uh, unbiased reviews to you. And then I try to kick them back through to you. And this is this is a bike that I haven't even touched. So I've touched enough of the XCWs and the, the TPI bikes in 2021. This is just one I'm giving to you guys. So hopefully everyone has a good, good day and leave a single track. Thanks.